Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A gracious and most loving Father, we give thanks and praise that you have revealed to us not only through creation, your glory and your power, but also through your word, your grace and your mercy. Lord, that how is it to any of us can be kept pure? Lord, it is through the washing and cleansing of your word. Lord, that as we seek with our whole heart, let us not wander from your word. Let us hold fast and let it dwell in us richly. Lord, as we store up your word in our hearts, that we might be able to walk in a way that is worthy of our calling, to be able to walk like Christ walked. Lord, bless us as you have promised according to your word, not according to our works. Lord, teach us your word and let it dwell in us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Exodus chapter 13. This is God's holy, inerrant, life-giving word. Please take heed how you hear. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn, Whatever is first to open the womb among the people of Israel, let both man and beast, both man and beast is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today is the month of Abib. You are going out. And when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, the Jezubites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hands, as a memorial memorial between your eyes, that the Lord your God may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, The Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute as an appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that the first opens the womb, to the firstborn of your animals, that are males, shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of the donkey You shall redeem with a lamb, for if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, 
both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes. For by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. The people of God had been released. And as we see in this period of the book of Exodus, that this event is to be marked is a pinnacle and enormous part of the story of God's people. A story that needs to be remembered. A story that they were to tell their children and their grandchildren. As we've seen all the signs and wonders of God's power, of God's punishment, of God's preservation, of all for God's purposes. We see this culmination with this final blow that struck the firstborn of the people of Egypt. We think about the story of Exodus and we think that it ends right at this point when the people are now set free. When they finally cross the Red Sea, they're free to be able to do whatever they want. But that's not the story of Exodus. The story of Exodus is not merely that the people of God have been set free from the bondage of slavery, but the people of God are set free to be able to serve God, to be able to serve Him and Him alone. Why then do we have all these extra chapters if it's merely just to be able to set them free? The close of the book of Exodus would happen after chapter 15, with a great final song. But we need to continue to read because this, this is merely the start of the story, not the end. Or more even correctly, it's a chapter in the story of God's people. One that goes back right to the Garden of Eden that extends to the city in heaven in Revelation. And as we think of the people leaving Egypt, we must notice they're driven to be able to consider the future. Generations that will come after them. And they are given instructions of what sets them apart from other nations. What will this particular covenant community do? Last time we saw that this covenant community is separate. Not everyone is included in this covenant community. But we also saw that this covenant community includes people. That it does not exclude people from joining that covenant community. And finally, we saw this covenant was regulated on, with what God had prescribed in his law. How they were to celebrate through the shadow of the Passover lamb. And this week, as they continue to walk out, we see further understanding of this covenant community. These instructions given to the people of God through this feast of unleavened bread. The consecration of the firstborn. We'll continue to see that this is not merely the story of the people of Israel, but the story of believers as promises are fulfilled in Christ. The first thing that we need to understand in this passage is covenant consecration. Covenant consecration. 
from verses 41 to 42, even in 51 of the previous chapter, we see a big shift in the story. They have officially been released from Pharaoh's servitude after 430 years of being slaves to Pharaoh, building his house and his houses and his kingdom. Now, after being set free from this slavery, they belong to God. You see this clearly in the opening verses where God says, consecrate to me. Or at the end of verse 2 where he says, whatever is first is mine. Now, this might seem harsh when we think about individual freedom and autonomy. We think freedom is not serving anyone else. Freedom is doing whatever you want, whenever you want to be able to do that. But God has saved his people to be his people. He has not merely saved them to be able to do whatever they want and what is right in their own eyes. He has saved them to be able to serve him. And they are to be set apart. As we saw last week, this covenant separation from the world. And as you remember, the key theme of the first portion of the book of Exodus was on the sons of Israel. That Pharaoh sought to be able to destroy the sons. But here God commands his people that they are to set apart the firstborn. The ones who were saved when the angel of death passed over their doorpost. They belong to God. Again, this seems harsh to us. Doesn't freedom mean that we can do what we want? We're free from any other form of oppression? There's a great danger, I think, here when we think of it in that terms. Oppression is, is a negative restraint. Oppression is something heavy-handedly forcing something upon someone else. Yet God does not oppress his people. We merely always think of this in, in human terms. Again, it seems harsh. Barely 40, 24 hours have passed, and now they serve another. But God is not like Pharaoh. Pharaoh ruled harshly and was bitter to them. Yet God is gracious and merciful. He is filled with goodness. We'll continue to see this as we walk through the book of Exodus. But God saved them for a particular purpose, to be his people. And God's people then are not, therefore, able to be able to do what they, whatever they see right in their own eyes. Actually, this is the marker which is traced throughout all of Israel's history when downward spirals start to emerge. This is exactly what God's people are doing. They're not submitting themselves to God under his authority, seeking to be able to live pleasing unto him. They're doing what is right in their own eyes. And when that happens, they end up looking just like the other pagan nations of all the world. But God's people have been saved for a purpose to be able to be separate, to be able to call them out. 
And this is exactly Paul's point in 1 Corinthians. He explains that you are not your own, as he speaks to believers. That you have been bought with a price. Paul's point is that Christians don't merely just live however they want to live. That you are a servant of Christ. And one of Paul's favorite phrases to be able to use as he introduces himself or speaks of his ministry is he is a servant of Christ, as we read before in, in Galatians chapter 1. That he's not called from man or through man. This is why he is called a bondservant of Christ. He sees himself as a servant, someone who has been bought with a price. Paul continues on to be able to go say, then honor God with your body. The Christ has purchased his people with his blood. Acts chapter 20, Hebrews chapter 9. And Israel had been chosen by God to be a nation and a people who show forth his glory and bring forth all types of shadows to be able to see the fulfillment found finally in Christ. And often I think this is what we think is, the, is, is a great problem in our, in our society. Today we think of Christ merely saving us from our sins to be able to do whatever we want. The Christians are merely just set free from the bondage of sin. But the message of the Bible is that not only people have been uh, saved from their sin, but saved from their sins even after. To be able to save and, and walk a life free from sin. That they're set apart for God's purposes. This is one of the words that we use in the New Testament that we don't really use commonly today, but the word of saints. It means that you are holy ones, ones that are set apart. The Christians and believers are set apart from any other people. Set apart to be holy as God is holy. As Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, knowing that you were ransomed from your futile ways, inherited from your, your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like a lamb without blemish or spot. Peter's point here is that we are to live holy because our God is holy, and why is his argument that way? Because we've been bought. We belong not to ourselves, but belong body and soul to our precious and Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The second thing that we see in this passage is covenant remembrance. We see that God sets the people apart, but also gives them instructions how they are to celebrate these promises, particularly through the meal of Passover, as we saw last week, but also the meal of the unleavened bread. We spent a bit of time of this when we were looking at the feast in Exodus chapter 12, verses 14 to 28. This feast, which was to be celebrated annually, alongside the Passover meal. And the significance of this Feast of Unleavened Bread was to be a festival of remembrance, highlighting the human tendency 
that we are prone to forget, that we need regular reminders of God's actions and grace. This feast symbolizes the freedom that serves as a time of reflection of God's deliverance. The people were to remove leaven as is linked with this spiritual cleansing. This leaven often related in the throughout the Bible as symbolizing sin. And the text connects this Old Testament practice within the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings as he speaks in 1 Corinthians, that Christ is our Passover lamb and the, the festival of unleavened bread we celebrate with truth and sincerity. And we see yet again, we have a reminder that we are forgetful. We don't need this reminder, do we? We think that we'll remember God's deliverance, this big event. 430 years in slavery, and you think, you know, they walk into the wilderness and immediately forget. Yet God has reminded his people that they are forgetful. The truth is that we're often more like the cupbearer in Joseph. He's in prison, and he has this dream, and Joseph interprets his dream, and Joseph tells him as he's leaving, remember me. And what does he do? He forgets. And so too, that's often with our life. We we often come together, we think of God's glory and his grace, his, his great gospel message, and we think, how could we forget such a thing? And then a new day comes. What have we done? We're forgotten. The God's people are always that in the same way. They're always quick to be able to forget what God has done. But also, they're quick to also embellish what it was like in their time in Egypt. They will not long after been saved from slavery Think about returning. It wasn't that bad. Think about the leeks and the cucumbers. But God sets apart a time for them to be able to remember. Actually, the whole calendar year was about remembering what God had done, giving thanks and praise to Him. So too, under the New Testament, we have similar reminders God gives us a day of rest, of of solitude and, and, and worship through the Lord's day that we are reminded of what Christ has done. A day where we can rest and remember. We can hear the good news every single week. Twice on that day, morning and evening. He's given us a meal of remembrance where we feed on Christ in faith. He's told us to be able to tell others of this great news. John Stott said, By the grace of God, we must determine to remember what once we were and never to return to it, to remember what God has made us and to uh, conform our lives to it. They were to remember through the celebrating of the Feast of Unleavened Bread but also through having it before their eyes and their hands 
Now, some Jewish scholars believe this actually means to be able to contain the law in these attachments, which they'd put on their, their frontlets between their eyes and on their hands. They would have the, the law summarized in, in a scroll and, and roll that up and have it in this container and wear it before them. I think it means more in a, a spiritual sense that we are to be able to have the word of Lord dwell in us richly. Always have it in our have it before our eyes, have it within our hands. How do we seek to be able to remember what Christ has done? How do we seek to be able to encourage one another to be able to remember and remind each other? The third thing that we see in this passage is the covenant catechism. One of the ways that God reminds his um, people to be able to do this is to be able to teach and instruct our children. See this both in the Feast of the Unleavened Bread in verse 8 and also where the firstborn is consecrated. See this when they celebrate the Passover. Why do you do this service? And we see the Bible often shows us children asking questions and the parent responding to them. This is one of the reasons and the foundations why the church practiced catechismal instruction. Instruction through a catechism. This method of teaching involves the use of a catechism, which is structured with a set of questions and answers designed to instruct individuals, particularly in matters of religious faith and doctrine. These series of questions are asked, and the child then responds. Ultimately, maybe it might begin with the the parent asking the question, answering the question, and ultimately then that through memory, the child then will soon be able to answer the questions on them on their own. Although this practice has some fall, somewhat fallen by the wayside, it's still very important for us to be able to use this structure. as It's a biblical pattern that, which is built upon. To be able to spend time with children and grandchildren, to be able to help them grow in this area. Although many of us might not be able to recite the whole catechism, This practice is ever before us, even with a simple question such as, what is the chief end of man? Many of us might not be able to know the whole catechism, but we might be able to know the answer to that question because it has been before us so many times. Oh, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Or maybe not even in that, maybe uh, in more a Dutch Reformed, what is our only comfort in life and death? Again, these questions respond with a, a, a memory of these answers that were given to us. And we see here in this passage, right as they're leaving, that this is to be passed down to the next generation. Even if we don't agree with the catechism form of instruction, we need to understand the underlying principle that's here at work that parents and adults need to be able to teach and pass on the doctrine to the next generation. The covenant community is not one that merely looks internally at itself as its current form. The covenant community should always be looking to the next generation. It looks past itself and hopes in the future. 
The covenant community understands that people will come and go, but God's promises remain, and therefore God's promises need to be handed down. That the children in our pews today, we pray, will be leading the church tomorrow. That we somewhat expect our children to be able to carry on what we have learned. But there's, there's a bit of a fault and a flaw. We, we somewhat expect that our children would merely be past the family recipe and then be able to use it. We somewhat expect that all we need to do is hand down the cookbook. But yet we never cook with them, we never bake with them, we never eat with them, we never enjoy time with them around this precious cookbook. And I sometimes think that we struggle with this because we ourselves are running on empty. We don't have a good relationship with the cookbook. We don't have fond memories of it. We think of it as a weapon that has been used rather than something that has been enjoyed. But I think that highlights the point which is here in this passage it's something very important. It's not merely that they use catechism as an instruction. It's not merely that they have this form to be able to pass down to the generations. But there's a personal aspect in which the parent then understands. Look at verse 8. He says, you shall tell your son on that day. It's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. That here the parent has a good understanding, not merely of doctrinal truths to be able to pass down. It's a personal expression that here God has saved me and delivered me. Why do we do this? Why do we celebrate this? Why do we remember this? It has a personal aspect to it. And often we want to sit down our children and explain that Jesus saves sinners. Look at the Bible. Look, look at what it teaches. But there needs to be a personal aspect where we sit down with our children and our grandchildren and say, Jesus doesn't just save sinners. I am a sinner and Jesus has saved me. One of the greatest things that you can show your children is that your love for God. Not merely by just dragging them to church and saying, you must go to church. But your par- you look at your parents as a child and you think, my parents love Jesus. And they go to church. They love going to church because they love hearing about Jesus. A personal connection, not merely by laying down the law, but by showing them what Christ has done for us. Not merely just passing down correct doctrine or intellectual knowledge. By being able to be able to say that Jesus is my Savior. I'm often guilty of this. I seek merely to be able to pass down intellectual knowledge. But Jesus didn't say, let the little children come to the correct doctrine. Jesus didn't say, let the, the children come to the right reformed catechism view of the proper understanding of scriptures. Scriptures. 
Jesus didn't say, let the children come to this intellectual knowledge, but let the children come to me. Let us pray that we would go to Christ as parents, as grandparents, as we seek to be able to know Christ in a fuller extent, that we would be like children going to him, dependent upon another for our salvation. But also let us teach our children this truth, that it is God, this marvelous God, with an outstretched arm has saved his people, saved us, and set us apart. The next thing we see is covenant redemption. Finally, we see this practice of covenant redemption. The Lord told Moses in verse 2 that he was to be able to consecrate all the firstborn to God. We're told how this is to happen. The firstborn to be able to open the womb was to be set apart as God's. The simple principle was that the firstborn belonged to God. God had saved the firstborn, therefore the firstborn belonged to God. They were to be set apart for God. But it might be redeemed through blood. For animals of the firstborn was to be sacrificed to God. Unclean animals, such as a donkey, was to be able to have a substitute, a lamb, which was to be sacrificed instead, to be able to redeem it back. Now, if perchance the donkey was useless and you thought it was a waste to be able to substitute a lamb for a donkey, then you would have to break its neck. But even the firstborn of every family was to be redeemed. The principle is quite simple. That God saved the firstborn. Now the firstborn belongs to God. But the family might redeem the firstborn by making a sacrifice through a lamb in their place. John Currit explains the cultural significance of this practice in light of pagan practices in the surrounding regions. He says, Here the verb to pass over is also a commentary on pagan child sacrifice. Pagans of ancient Near East would take a child and pass him over through the fire as a form of devotion or sacrifice. But yet God does not require such barbaric expression. He wants the firstborn set apart and devoted to his service. Thus the Israelites are not to pass over the firstborn in the fire, but to pass them over to the Lord. This again is the teaching moment for the children. As they ask every year around spring, as they see the first-time mothers give birth in the flock, they see these lambs or animals redeemed, the parents are then to again instruct them of this great story of God's redeeming his son from Egypt. In all of this, we must remember this great overarching pinnacle moment in Israel's history. As we're reminded several times throughout the passage that God has first 
save them, and then set them apart. They need not set themselves apart, save themselves, and then do these things to be able to earn salvation. Your God has delivered them from the bondage of Pharaoh. We don't read chapter 13 in a vacuum. God has shown his power and his might by defeating Israel's enemies for them. He has set them free. They had cried to God in Exodus chapter 4, and God has now answered their prayers. The first step of the covenant was God saving his people, and he has done that. They are free. The second aspect is that we all see that they are going to the promised land. There are people who have grown numerous in number. They are a nation, but a nation without a land. God tells them these great promises in this passage that when the Lord brings you into the land, not if the Lord brings you, the Lord has fulfilled his promises time and time again, and we will see eventually him fulfill this promise as well. We see he does not, he brings them into the promised land. But we see the final fulfillment in the coming of Christ. The aspect of the law which is mentioned here is fulfilled by Christ for us. In the Gospel of Luke, Luke explains in Luke chapter 2, verse 23, that Christ was presented in the temple, as is written in the law, and he quotes Exodus 13, 2 and 12. Christ, the firstborn, has redeemed his people. Christ's son was sacrificed to be able to redeem us, to be able to make us his children. Let's go to Lord in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that as we read through these pages of Scripture, we see your covenant promises. Lord, your, your plan for a covenant community to be set apart from the world. Lord, to be able to be set apart from the world, to be able to serve you and you alone. Lord, that we see the promises of the gospel of Christ to come. Lord, we see the promise of the the continuation of the covenant community long after we have gone to be with you. Lord, we pray that you would use this particular covenant community here at Seven Springs Presbyterian Church to be able to serve you, to be able to seek to be able to be holy as you are holy. Help us in this as you send your spirit in your people. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.